Well, I, this morning we are beginning to move away from our time of uh, the summer messages as we talked about gleaning from Christ. And as we move back into Ecclesiastes, next week we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. But this morning I want to kind of bridge that and talk about Romans 15, the importance of gospel living with other believers. And that's really the reality is as family and being family and how do we live together as family in a time uh, when things are always changing, when people are telling us what to do and when the, the politics and culture and all the things that we face. And really, the reality is, is that church family uh, gets caught in the crosshairs of all the things that are happening. And I wanted to address some of that as we prepare our hearts uh, for going back into Ecclesiastes and address some of the issues that we are going to be facing. And so I trust that you already turned into Romans 15 and asked God to teach us about the importance of gospel living and that your mind and heart would be drawn uh, to this gospel subject as living together as family because we are adopted by the work of Christ into the family of God and being one of his adopted children, how do we live together? The reality is, to get the full context, we need to read chapters 12 through through 15, but we're not going to do the full force of that this morning. But if you desire to understand this even more, I encourage you to go read this week from chapters 12 through chapters 15, because that is the reality of what we're going to be talking about uh, today. Well, let's pray and then read this section of verses together, and uh, as we look at the first 13 verses of, of Romans 15. Lord, we thank you for our church family. We thank you that we are family, um, that we have many ebbs and flows, kids, adults, grandparents, We have um, sickness, we have health, we have life, we have death. Lord, you have brought us together. You brought us together with a mission, with a desire that we proclaim and glorify your holy name, that we go forth modeling your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we obey and we teach others to obey all that you have commanded proclaiming your great name. Because it's your great name that we now call our own. We are Christ's little ones. We are adopted into your family. And I pray that this morning that would be even more clear and more transparent. And that you would help me to be extraordinarily clear this morning to uphold your word in such a way that it would glorify you. May we learn and grow together as what does it mean to be a part of this family and how can we use the gospel in growing the family, but most importantly, being family. That we just don't use the gospel to tell others, but that we use the gospel 
in being family together and doing life together. I pray that you would encourage our hearts as we proclaim your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 15, as we gather here, he has told us because of the gospel, the first 11 chapters of Romans is all, Paul is, is unpacked. What is the gospel? What does it, the gospel mean? How does it transform our lives? What does it look like? What does it not look like? And now he says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because the gospel is God's great mercy, it's his grace that he's lavished upon us to present ourselves to him, a living sacrifice, to lay down, to trust him with our life and our daily living. It's, a, it's the great turn in which now he says, live the gospel, and this is what it should look like. And, and he's shown us a very measured things about the gospel in our daily life. And now he has gotten to chapters 14 and chapters 15, and he says this, starting in verse 1 of our text today. It says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol and lift him up. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and even those who arise to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I love that term, abounding in hope. It's a common response to what God is teaching us in these verses. Through his holy scripture, we may find and have hope, or through the power of the Holy Spirit, we might find and live with great 
hope. Living as a, a family, as a family of God, with many different generations, we have many different generations. The church is four generations for Christ. It's literally, it's not a, a generational thing where it serves one generation over another. It's actually all the generations as, as the family of God. We have children, we have babies, we have children, we have, we have teens, we have young adults, we have parents, we have grandparents. You know, actually, grandparents are the greatest blessings. A lot of times people say grandparents are the greatest blessings for kids, but literally they're the greatest blessings for parents, right? Right? Because if you're a parent, you realize the value of grandparents because you've been teaching and preaching to your kids and, and they don't want to listen to you, but then grandparents come along and, and preach and teach to them and, and they listen and the parents are like, praise the Lord <laughs> for the grandparents. And kids are saying, praise the Lord for the grandparents because as they teach and preach to the, your kids, they give them candy and the kids are happy. <laughs> but we are different generations. We are all, not just different generations in age, but we are all different generations as adopted children in the family of God. There are some that have just recently received the Lord. There are some that have been saved for 30 years, 10 years, 5 years. There are those that have been saved for a whole lot more than that in our church. That were born in this church and are now 90 plus years old. There are many different generations. Paul is focusing on the work of the gospel in the family of Christ. The work of the gospel in people's lives rather than a list of to-dos and and don'ts in the church. Many times you'll find churches that focus on a lot of do's and don'ts. And and you're really not a, a good believer if you don't do these things. And, and it's not bad. There's, there's a lot of things, right, that the Scripture says, don't do this or don't do that. That's not Paul's focus when he talks about strong believers and weak believers. A lot of times there's a lot of different focuses on weakness or strength. People look at age in the church as strength, and they look at as uh, how young you are at the church as weakness, or they simply just what you don't know versus what you know. I have actually seen young believers in Christ that don't know a lot about the Bible live out their faith in much stronger ways than those that have been in the church for a lot of years. There is, this is not what Paul is talking about. It's not about how much you know. It's literally about faith, trust, your walk with the Lord. It's about the gospel. The gospel is so pivotal. Milton Vincent, in a great book, he wrote a book uh, called The Gospel Primer for Christians. The Gospel Primer for Christians. Learning to see the glories of God's love. He wrote this and he said, Preach the gospel to yourself every day. What is the gospel? What is at the heart of the gospel? Of course, 1 Corinthians 15, when I was asked, 
What is the verse when I was ordained? It was that, what is the one verse that explains the gospel in its most compact form? Of course, I didn't know. <laughs> in all my years, I'd never heard that. But I was asked, and uh, luckily I was asked by somebody before I was ordained, and I was like, oh, I'll make note of that, and sure enough, it came up in my ordination. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 4, Paul declared this, for I deliver to you, I give out to you, I pass to you as of first importance that I've received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and then he rose on the third day in accordance with with the scripture. Everything is according to what God has said and is saying and always is proclaiming in the gospel. Did you notice there? He didn't die for health. He didn't die for wealth. He didn't die to give, a, die to give us self-esteem. He died for our sins, which separated us from God. And made us eternally condemned. And he saved us by his death and resurrection. Right now, more than ever, we are seeing more and more a redefining what the gospel means. What the gospel says. The social justice movement has completely redefined the gospel. Ibram X. Kendi, in his book, it's a number one bestseller and a proponent of the social gospel movement, he says the gospel is elevating, elevating people that are low to a higher status in our society. If, if, the gospel, if that's not a part of the gospel, then there is no gospel. Direct quote from his book says, to be a Christian, to be called a Christian, is, in another book, in uh, D'Angelo, is basically to liberate people out of poverty into a, a higher status in our society, to be equal with all others. That's what it means to be a Christian. Love has been hijacked. Equality has been hijacked. It's amazing that God himself says when Jesus died or came, not died, but he came from heaven to earth to die, to live on earth for us to live in this muck and mire and he came to serve us. He said he didn't think equality to be grasped, that he deserved to be in heaven, but yet he said that that's not the thing to hold on to, to treasure. Equality is not to be treasured, but to die for us, to be the go-between, to satisfy, to satisfy God's wrath on our behalf. The gospel, the good news, that was the gospel. That's what is important. The church is under attack because it is, you're being told by politics, you're being told by sociologists, by philosophical people what the gospel is, what church should be. And they're redefining terms that we know to be true in scripture, but that's not what they believe what scripture says. They only believe what they want it to believe or say. They are defining and redefining these things. And the church 
Us is caught in the crossfire. What do we do with all the mandates? What do we do? Is the vaccine good? Is the vaccine bad? Is, is all of these mandates good? Are they bad? And the church is caught in the crossfire, and what do we do? This is not new. In Rome, Paul is talking to the church of Rome, and they are caught in the crossfire, the church, because we have Jews, we have Gentiles, and so the ethnic diversity, and there's, there's, they're battling because two different ethnic cultures clashing. Not only that, but we have two religious cultures, the Gentiles and the Jews, in which they worshiped in totally different ways. So you have Gentiles that, that are like... I can't do these things because that's the way I used to worship. And then you have Jews are like, it doesn't matter because we just take care of this. And, but then the Jews are like, you can't, you have to do this with your body. And Gentiles are like, we never did that with our body. It doesn't matter. And you had fighting and you had division and you had, and you lost the impact of the church family. And so he writes in Romans 15, Jerry Bridges, talking about the gospel and how it affects us, he says, we tend to give an unbeliever just enough of the gospel to get him or her to pray a prayer to receive Christ. Doesn't sound too bad, because we want people to receive Christ. We want people to respond to the gospel. But we do just enough to get them there. He says, quote, Then we immediately put the gospel on the shelf, so to speak, and go on to the duties of discipleship. Doesn't sound bad. We need a disciple. We need to train. We need to teach. We need to instruct. Help people to see God in his fullest. But the gospel's on the shelf. As a result, Christians are not instructed in the gospel. And because they do not fully understand the riches and glory of the gospel, they cannot preach it daily to themselves, nor live by it daily themselves, thus struggling to share it with others for the Lord. The gospel of Christ is not the starter switch by which the engine by which you turn the engine on, but by which the entire engine of the Christian life functions. It is not only the starter switch, it is the whole fuel that keeps the engine going. It is also the oil that keeps the the friction. You know, right? You want to, my grandpa, we, we have, not my grandpa, I'm sorry, I adopted him, but it's, it's Anissa's grandfather. We have Anissa's grandfather's truck. He everything he owns, it looks dirty on the outside. But I tell you what, the engine purrs. His philosophy was is keep keep everything under two thousand RPMs. Change the oil. Fix you know keep it keep it well lubricated. Never push the engine. He always he never blew up an engine. He never did. He pulled a trailer for. Thousands and thousands of miles, just like Pastor Ralph. Never change a transmission, never change an engine. Still drives really good. I, I asked, uh, Bobby Russ was driving it the, a while back, and I asked him, is there anything you think I should do to it? And he goes, well, you should clean it. 
<laughs> and because uh, it looked like a logger's truck. And he goes, but man, it drives so easy. It's so easy to drive. It's so just, it purrs. That was, that was grandpa, right? But he said, never take it over 2,000 RPMs. I mean, we'd be going 25 miles an hour on the freeway. So that way he could keep it under 2,000 RPMs. Man, you got great gas mileage. I, mean, I got, more, got better gas mileage following him than I ever did my rest of my life. I learned something that day. The gospel is everything. It's the lubrication to keep the friction down, to keep the engine purring. It is everything in that aspect. It is the engine of the church family. That's why Paul was so grieved when people added to the gospel or took away from the gospel, distorted the gospel, because it ruins the engine of the church. Galatians 1.6, he says, I'm so astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He told that to the Galatian church. It's like, you guys, why are you talking about all these do's and don'ts? The gospel is not a mere belief system. It's our life by which, by it's the Life by which we live our everyday Christian life. J.K. Dodson said this, not Dobson, but Dodson, and not Dodson like the truck. <laughs> D.O.D. Son. He said this, a disciple of Jesus is, is someone who learns the gospel, relates the gospel to all of his life, and communicates the gospel through his life. The gospel is for undergraduates and graduates, young and old believers, because nobody ever graduates from the gospel. Every follower of Jesus needs to know and be reminded that the gospel that makes the disciples makes disciples is the very same gospel that matures disciples. We are born in grace. We are breathe, we breathe by grace, all are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christian maturity is not, is not going beyond the gospel. It is growing deeper in the gospel. It's not going beyond it and saying that there's got to be more to the Christian life. It's actually becoming deeper into the gospel, digging down deep into the well of our gift in Christ. You say, is he ever going to get to the notes? Yes. <laughs> Here's the point of what he's saying. What Paul is telling us in our verses this morning. This is the whole point. The strong believer is responsible to build up. right? To build up the weak believer so that all believers may end up glorifying God. That's the point. Building up to glorify God. That's what he's, ex there's this exhortation. As we look at your notes, you can see the first part is, is what we are commanded to do. That's the exhortation. The second section of notes is the explanation of why we should do it. I love it when we get the why, right? 
We don't have to like sit there and contemplate our navel and try to figure it out. It's right there in the text. It's very simple. There are three main responsibilities set forth in two of the verses, and that's verses 1 through 2 of our text. And this, and this is it right here. We who are strong have an obligation. Obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Number one, the strong believer has a responsibility to bear the weaknesses. Very simple, right? It's right there in the text. To bear, not to... to sometimes when we say uh, just to bear with it, right? We, it doesn't mean... The term to bear with doesn't mean to simply put up with. Once sometimes you know, oh, I bared with my boss today, right? Man, it was just... Work was... Uh, yesterday for me, talking about work, yesterday for me was bearing with my tractor, wanting to constantly stop, right? <laughs> it was like, I, I have an old tractor, so I'm always tinkering with it and making it work. And yesterday was, was like, oh, sitting there, and I was like, praise God. When it stopped one time and it started to rain, I was like, okay, it's time for a break. <laughs> go stretch the back, go, go stand. And I was like, because the only work I was going to do was with the tractor, because I wasn't doing any other manual labor with my back. The strong believer, the weak believer, in the sense here, he's not talking about the more knowledgeable one. It's talking about strong in faith, strong in understanding, strong in walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh. The idea here is, is those who are walking according to the Spirit need to bear. It means to Hold up, the word literally in the Greek means to, to lift up and carry something, to bear. We see that in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, and when he talks about the idea of, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh or the failings of the flesh. The same concept that we see here in Romans 15. That we need to bear up one another, to build up one another. In chapter 6, verse 1, Paul goes on to say, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Spiritual doesn't mean a, the strong believer in church, the elder in church, the, the church Sunday school teacher, the, the, the one who can do all things, the one who knows all things. It simply means the one who is letting the Spirit dictate how they walk in life. It says, so you who are choosing to walk by the Spirit, he says, restore the brother in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Doesn't mean the one who's caught in trespass and sin doesn't always, uh, or trespasses, doesn't always mean that this is a willful disobedience. It doesn't always mean you who are spiritual should go confront. And this is not about confronting. This is about bearing somebody's burdens who's struggling to walk by the Spirit. It's the same con idea and context that we see here in our verses, when he says, you who are strong have an obligation. We have an obligation to, to come up and bear up one another. We have an obligation to support one another. 
We have an obligation to carry one another as a father or a mother carries a dear child. When we say, stop running to our kids, right? And then they fall and skin their knees or they hurt themselves and we come and we bear them up and we carry them. Sometimes my kids are running and and I bear them up. I grab them and I (laughs) kind of lift up underneath their armpits and I'm bearing them up even though they are still walking. But to learn to walk by the Spirit and not by their energized little minds. You got to bear them up. And sometimes a little swift kick with the shoe and the fanny. Hey, stop running. As a father, this tenderness to say, look, come up alongside. That's church family. Paul says we are obligated. Do you know what that word obligated means? We are obligated means to owe something. Did you remember when before we came to Christ, before we heard the gospel, we owed God our life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus came down to earth to bear us up so we, through the gospel, could be carried by the Spirit to the Father, to an eternal relationship in his family. Paul is saying the same thing here. He's talking in gospel language. He says, brothers, we who are strong, though are walking by the Spirit, have an obligation. We owe it to God. It literally speaks, the word obligation is a literal debt that is owed. As our faith grows, as our walk with God grows, as we imitate Christ more, We are obligated to come along those that are struggling and bear them up, to prop them up, to help them walk in the Spirit. It's an obligation as a family. Can you imagine if families that would just say, would let the kids run out in the street and get hit by cars and not to to bear them up and to train them and to help them understand what freedom really means? We are, once they start using their legs, right, we are, we are obligated as a family member to, to help one another, to bear up one another. That is the same in the church family. How do we do that? We are exhorted in the last part of this verse. He says, and not to please ourselves. The strong believer must has the responsibility not to focus on pleasing himself. More than likely, the Apostle Paul specifically had in his mind the kinds of things strong believers have a tendency to do with the weak in the faith. The weak that uh, following the Spirit, we tend, to, we tend to think, I be focused on all the things that I can do in Christ. We, we tend to think about, you know, like talking to the kids, got to got to start them young and teach them what propitiation means so when they read it in the Bible, they can understand it, right? We have, it's, we have weak, just, not just because they're young, but because their faith is young. 
We were strong not to focus on ourselves and say, well, I, should, I have the ability to do all these things. And we have a tendency just to let the, those that are struggling in the faith, to let them go. Sometimes we get rid of them. Sometimes we look down on them. It's easier sometimes to just say, oh, I'm just not going to deal with them. They have all their own ways of thinking. But no, Paul says, that's not the point. The point is to build up one another. Paul's point is that the strong believer has the responsibility not to focus on self, but rather create an environment, an atmosphere, where those that are weak in their faith, the weak believer may be helped out of his weakness and grow in the faith. And sadly, we have so many churches today that are focusing on the weak believer to stay weak in the faith. And sadly, we have so many churches that focus on, they grow and they grow and they inbred and they focus on only the strong things and they, re, they push all the weak out. We can't do that. We have to gather and grow together. Charles Hodge Professor of Biblical Language at Princeton Theological Seminary back in the mid-1800s. That's right, Princeton was a theological seminary. That produced some amazing evangelists and pastors for the Lord. You know, that Harvard too. Now they have an, uh, the chairman of their theological department, the president of their theological department is an atheist. It just boggles my mind. But Charles Hodge, he said this, he said, He said, this idea is that the strong believer must not do what he has the right to do. Sinclair Ferguson, he called it the must principle. We we must not give in to the must. The moment I need to exercise my liberty, in that moment, I've lost my liberty, he says. The moment I say I must do this because it's my liberty is the moment I lost my liberty to the feelings of the must. You see the important principle here? God does not grant us freedom or liberty just so we can please ourselves. Our liberty is granted so that we may function in various contexts in reaching others and to minister to others. If pleasing ourselves is our primary motive, we will have a miserable existence. We'll have a miserable family. We'll have a miserable church life. The world says this, the might is right. And we see it right now. That might is right. The strongest opinion is the most important But that is not so with the gospel. The gospel way is this, that the might support the weak. That was the biblical principle and the founding of our political system. And it has been long forgotten. But sadly, I would expect the things in the human world, in the the humanistic things of this world that focus on pleasing themselves, for that to be destroyed. But... It's sad to see that happening in church family life where the might is right. It's why it's so lovely to have humility amongst church family. 
It also affects those around us. The strong believer has a responsibility to please his neighbor. The purpose or reason of why the strong believer is to please his neighbor, Paul goes on to talk about, because it is a thing that is for your neighbor's good. Paul is not telling us to be people pleasers. It's not to go around and just, we're supposed to please and do whatever people want. That's not what he's saying. Far from it. It's to build up people in the faith. It's for your neighbor's good. When you who are strong in the faith, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, is to live out that gospel around your neighbors for their good, to please them, not to focus on your rights, on your property, but think how to best serve your neighbors. I am in that conundrum right now because I, my dogs have greatly offended my neighbors, Right? They chase my neighbors, they chase my neighbors' cars, they chase my neighbors' dogs, they chase, they just chase. They say, well, just keep them behind a gate. We did that. They learned to climb the gate. So we put, you know, we we blocked that part of the gate off. So then they learned how to open the gate. We have an electronic gate that shuts. We have a dog that can, I have a hard time opening the gate. We have a dog that takes his arm and opens the gate so the other one can get out. And as the other one's getting out and it's pushing against him, the other one climbs over him and gets, they both get out. The stupid thing is you think that somebody that can pull a gate open could push it open with their head on the way back in. But no, they'll sit there and bark at the gate <laughs> until you go down there and open it up for them. I've seen them learn how to climb the wood and get over the gate. It is just pure insanity. So we went to an invisible fence. So now they've learned how to rip the collars off of each other. We have one that'll sit just close enough to let the batteries die. So it'll sit there. You'll hear the beeping nonstop until the battery dies. Then they get out of the gate. If one of them's outside with the collar on, and the other one's not there to rip the collar off. They'll sit there and they'll go walk up to a knot on our tree and put the, the collar. We've watched it. We're like, how are they getting it off? And he, they'll push on the tree until he, they break it. So I got to figure out. I'm like, we've, now only one dog is allowed outside at a time. <laughs> We're building a doggy jail. So, oh, Dogs. What was the whole point of that? <laughs> Please, my neighbor. <laughs> I think I'm going to f- kill one of our cows. We're going to have a barbecue and invite the whole neighborhood. <laughs> and say, meet our dogs. And yes, they will still bark at you after you meet them. They bark at me every time I come home. <laughs> In other words, it seems like Paul is telling us to be people pleasers. Not a people pleaser, but people builders. Our job is to build up one another. That is a gospel-driven priority. In the instruction, in, his, in the introduction to his book, Thomas Watson, not our Thomas Watson, the old Puritan Thomas Watson. I loved when I first met Thomas Watson from our church, I said, Hey, are you related to the Thomas Watson? And he just shook his head. Who's that? And I said, oh boy, you've got some great reading ahead of you. Now he's down at the Master's Seminary learning about biblical counseling. 
um, and uh, just biblical theology, and he is having a blast, and he has read Thomas Watson. In the beginning of the book of The Duty of Self-Denial, he wrote this, Christians today is characterized by individualism. By the way, this was way back when, and, and way back when, you know, turn of the century, I think a few of you were born about that time. <laughs> but Christianity today, he said, is characterized by individualism, comfort, and self-indulgence. And he says, how sad. Because it doesn't ever build up one another. David Tripp, a current biblical counselor, he said this, the DNA of sin is, the DNA of sin, the DNA makeup of sin is, is selfishness. So sin is antisocial. That's our problem today. Social justice is going to be dealing with sin. It's only truly when justice will be found. This means that I need, he goes on to write, this means that I need to be rescued from me. Jesus, Jesus in the empty tomb is my rescue every day. That's how we build family. That's how we add people to the family. This is what we need today. We need to be rescued. Every day we need to be rescued from me. The gospel isn't just to take to people outside of the walls. It's for us to live by as a church family. The gospel of Christ teaches us to die to self and to practice loving one another in the church. There's many scriptures. You know the famous ones, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. He focuses on, he says, let each of you look not on your own interest, but also on the interest of others. Have this mind, the mind of Christ. That's the gospel mind among yourself, which was yours in Christ Jesus, through your relationship with Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though being the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form. He humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. You see that Christ didn't just come to please himself. And he didn't just come to say that everybody was right. How many times did he call the religious rulers of the days just a brood of vipers? Right? <laughs> You're a bunch of snakes. Right? And there's, sadly, there are still today a bunch of religious rulers who are a bunch of snakes that are in it for themselves. In the me syndrome. Heaven forbid that we be that. We want to be a family of God who pulls others into the family by building them up. This is Paul's exhortation to us. Ephesians 4.32 and also Ephesians 5.2. We've been going through this in our Bible study on Wednesday nights. I promise, I, we were, we've been trying to figure out if we would get out of chapter 5 before the end of the year. I don't know if we're going to make it. <laughs> Those of you that are in it, we know we go really slow. We dig out the gospel at every way we can. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. That's the gospel. And then he says in verse 2 of chapter 5, it says, therefore, imitate God. We learn that imitating God means mimicking God. We're supposed to mimic or mime. The word imitate is, is where we get the word to mime. Do you mime in your life to where people actually see God without using words? 
right? I don't always like that term when it comes about, talks about sharing the gospel, but it is true. We should be mimicking God. And he says, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the gospel, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me ask you a couple questions. Do we come out of our self-absorbed life by beholding the cross of Christ? Do we use the gospel? Do we use the cross of Christ when we wake up, when we're walking through the day, to help us to come out of our self-absorbed? We are naturally, it's just natural for us to be self-absorbed. It's easy. It's, it, it's so easy to fall into that trapping. Are we walking in love like Christ? Are we using the gospel not only to deal with the me syndrome, but are we using the gospel to build up others? That's what love is. Loving your neighbor as yourself, to please his neighbor for his good, in the context as bringing the gospel to our neighbors. Getting a shot for your neighbor is not loving your neighbor. We have all of these things through the politics telling you what to do to love. The gospel is love. God is love. That defines love. Not going over to my neighbor to help him on a project because I'm not feeling good. Now that's loving my neighbor. I had to tell him that. He asked me the other day when we had COVID back in early February, or late February, early March. He wanted me to go help him with something. I just stood at the fence like, we have COVID. <laughs> I said, I'm not sure if I have a cold or flu or whatever, but it's, it, it, it's part of the COVID family. <laughs> and he said, oh, okay. He said, I don't care. <laughs> He's a believer. But, and he says, the quicker I get it, the quicker we'll get over it. So I said, that's okay. I'm staying over here. But he, and I, I said, because my wife must have been sick for 11 days. And he goes, oh. <laughs> and so we talked at a distance. I love my neighbor. First John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's the gospel. That we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. See, it's not about whether we have a vaccine or not have a vaccine. If you're arguing about that, you've lost the whole point. You've missed the gospel. It's not about whether you're right to get the vaccine or you're wrong to get the vaccine. It's not about whether you're right to mask up or not right to mask up. I don't really care. The point is the gospel. Once we start battling and arguing about what is right and what is not, we've lost the gospel. Do we lay down our time for our brothers and sisters? Jim has during the hardest time. <laughs> he came over and dug all my trenches in two days. But then he came over and played. <laughs> dug. I swore I'd never have a pond on my property. Both Jim and my wife one out. <laughs> I think my daughter had something to do with it too, but our ducks now have a pond. It was supposed to be a little pond. My wife says, a little pond. Jim says, a pond. <laughs> I said, what about our little, our little chickies? They're going to drown in that. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll fix that. 
Jim put steps that go out of the pond. (laughs) Do we lay down our time, our comforts, our money, our preferences, our offenses for the gospel? Jesus laid down his life for us. What are you willing to lay down for? Others. John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Paul is saying, we who are strong, we are obligated, we have a debt to come alongside one another and bear up one another. Not to be a bear to one another. Some of us like to be grizzly bears, right? That's mine. I wanted to do that ministry. Great. Make the ministry bigger. Build up one another. If you, so we become bears, but God wants us to bear up. You see somebody struggling in their faith, go up to them and bear them up. That's the gospel. We owe it to God because he laid down his life for us and now he's calling us to lay down our life for one another. How do we respond to our times Sadly, nothing has changed. The times in which Paul was preaching and the Holy Spirit gave him God's word to give to us, they were struggling with the same things. And he says, you want to be a family of God, then bear with one another. Support one another. And for that reason, we are going to do part two of the sermon next week. Why should we live this way in the church? So look at Romans 12 through 15, and we'll answer the whys next week. Lord, we are so grateful for your love in which you have loved us, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us, that you renew your mercies in our life every day, that you promise that the work that you did through the cross of Christ, through the gift that satisfies your wrath against our sin and ugliness, that ruins everything that you created as perfect. But you gave us Christ. And through that gift, you promised that he who began that good work in us, through the work of the Holy Spirit and through Christ's death and burial and resurrection on the cross, You have given us peace. You have satisfied. You're satisfied your wrath because Jesus took all of it on the cross for us. What love you have given us. All of us who have laid down and and stopped trying to run and live our own sinful me life, at one point we threw our life down at you and and confessed and and turned to you and laid down and said, Lord, I need you. I am dead. Make me alive. Save me from my sin. You have said all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, saved from the wrath of God that we deserved. 
and that you promise to continue to, to help us, to carry us, to make us more like you, to help us, to make our paths straight in the midst of turmoil. So that way we would see you, know you, and we can trust you. Lord, Lord, if someone here has never given their life to you and confessed and realized it is not about how good I am because I, I can never be good. There's none righteous, no, not one, you said in Romans 3. That's why we need a Savior. And you came to be a servant. You came to be obedient to the Father. Jesus, you came to serve us, to be a deacon, to serve. You didn't sit there in heaven and say, I have a right to sit on the throne, but yet you came to serve, to love us, to demonstrate us what real love is so you could bear up our failings and lead us to faith. I pray that if someone here does not have a personal relationship with you, has no faith in you, that they know about you, but they have not trusted in you as their Savior, the Savior of their sins, to pay for their sins, to pay for the, to step in between them and God, to pay for their sin, that they would do that this morning, to call upon the Lord and be saved. The rest of us, I pray that we would use that glorious love every day to redefine our life in our church family, to be the adopted family of God, our Savior, who has all the rights and privileges because of being given to us through Christ, by his blood, putting his robe of authority and a seal of the Holy Spirit on our life that we are a part of the family of God. May we live as your family, building up one another, even in differences of opinions, even in struggles and sins. May it be our goal to bear with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.